Psalms. We are in uh, the Psalms for the soul. Psalm 116 is the Psalm for this morning. I'm going to ask you to turn there, and as you're turning there, let me just by way of introduction give you a few thoughts before I ask you to stand. I'm not sure if you do. I forgot. I've gotten used to Redeemer, so I'm going to ask you to stand for the preaching of the Word because it is God's inspired Word, but for right now, Psalm 116 is really a picture of life. It is a picture of life because it is help for the helpless. It is a psalm for the soul. It is balm for the soul because what we find is the psalmist is now at a point of great suffering and affliction in great pain, but he has already understood that he is a child of the living King. He already knows that the gospel has been applied to him, that he has experienced the work that's been done for him. Now he finds himself in despair, in a place of frustration. He knows that God has been faithful in the past. And that's his guarantee that God will be faithful today in his present and also in the future as well. So he calls out to that one who has already proven himself to be faithful because he finds himself in this repeated cycle, this cycle that not only is repeated in his life, but I am convinced is repeated in our lives as well. What is that cycle? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I would like to show you what that is. So, Psalm 116 gives us the answer. Join me in standing. Let's give our full attention to the reading and then the preaching of God's Word. Hear now the very Word of God. I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because He inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call on Him as long as I live. The snares of death have encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death. My eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and I will call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and I will call on the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you speak to us through your word and by the power of your spirit. Open our eyes now to behold wonderful, beautiful things from this portion of your law we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, friends, be seated. So over the course of almost 40 years of marriage, Jennifer and I have bought and redone several houses 
Sometimes we've bought houses and they are minor, minor changes. We'll move in and we'll put our stuff kind of in the center of the room and we'll paint the walls a different color, a lighter shade or a different shade. We may place a, replace a few fixtures here and there, just some minor work while we lived inside the house. And then eventually, because I married an interior designer, we would sell that house and we would find another project to do. A lot of them have been that mild, that, that small, but some of them have been some huge undertakings where we would walk into the house and the seller before us, the owner before us, would stage it in such a way. They would declutter all of their stuff that, that made the house look smaller and they would put a, a fake plant over here and a couple of wine glasses over there and they would make it look beautiful because in their mind, their house was perfect. It was the most perfect house on the market and anybody would want to walk in and see that and purchase that house and they would move right in it. They wouldn't do a thing. But we would come into the house, and Jennifer having the gift of seeing the bones of the structure would say, yeah, this, this is great, this is great. And then they would move their stuff out and we would keep ours in storage because the next day would be demo day. <laughs> and we would come in with crews or sometimes do it all by ourselves and we would begin the demo, uh, the demo and it would advance to the second day, third day, second week, third week. Some of these projects that we did all the way down to the studs where we ripped out lath, we ripped out sheetrock, we ripped out cabinets, we ripped out countertops, we replaced just about everything inside the house, moved walls to open up living room space. And then eventually, after we endured all of that disaster and destruction for low those many days and sometimes even a few months, we would eventually <clears throat> unpack our stuff out of storage, move in. And it would be greater than it was even before. That is a cycle that we repeated in our lives where we went from this state of orientation where we walked into a house that other people, the previous owners, thought was just a, a great house to have. But we would go from that orientation stage to this disorientation stage where we would rip out everything and it would be a complete disaster on the inside, but eventually back to a reorientation where it was actually even better than before. I share that illustration with you because that really is Psalm 116. That is the cycle that is repeated in the life of the psalmist, and I know is repeated in your life as well. We are in this orientation stage where the gospel has been applied to us by the, the finished work of Christ, the gift that God gives to us, but in our love for our sin, our, uh, more than our Savior, the darkness more than the light, many times we move from this orientation stage all the way to disorientation where we're living in our sinfulness. But the Savior loves us too much to leave us there, claiming us again, reclaiming us. He reorients us back into that gospel life, that kingdom life, and it's even better than before as we continue this cycle over and over again. That is uh, exactly what the psalmist gives to us at this, uh, in Psalm 116, this repeated cycle for him. But you'll notice in the psalm that this is a psalm filled with uh, personal pronouns. Look at verses 1 and 2. I love the Lord, my voice, and he has inclined his ear to me, I, my, and me. And if you drop down to the lower part of the psalm, like beginning in verse 9, almost to the very end, 
It begins with the personal pronoun I, almost every verse. I will, I believed, I said, I will, I will, I will, over and over again. It, it is a picture of this particular individual who is giving us this, this cycle of moving from orientation to disorientation, but because God has been faithful here, he is absolutely certain that God will be faithful here as well. And not only will he be faithful here, but he will be faithful to bring him back to this place, this orientation to disorientation to reorientation. Because God has been faithful in the past, the psalmist says, I know he is faithful today, even in spite of this suffering and affliction and pain that I'm living in, and he will bring me, reorient me, all the way back to that gospel life uh, even greater than it was before. It is interesting, though, that this psalm is filled with personal pronouns. Spurgeon said of the psalm, it's a personal love fostered by a personal experience of redemption. But why is it, that's interesting, it should be interesting to us, is because Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 are what's known as the halal psalms, from which we get our word Hallelujah. 113 to 118, the Halal Psalms, which were the psalms that the corporate body, Israel, used in corporate worship inside the temple as they gathered together for the renewing of the covenant. So it was a corporate thing, Psalm 113 to 118. But almost right here in the middle, we have Psalm 116 that is from the perspective of an individual. What's going on here then? I think it's this. Those songs of ascent that you know as the, as the Israelites made their way up uh, Mount Zion to gather together to worship where they were about to sing all the halal psalms, this particular one individual has now experienced this cycle of moving from here to here and hopes to be or moved back to this spot again. And it's as if he has his head down and he's thinking to himself, he's chanting to himself, God has been faithful in the past in spite of this affliction and suffering that I'm living in today. I'm headed to the top of the mountain where I know I'm going to meet Yahweh. He has been faithful. I know he is faithful. And I know he promises to be faithful in the future. And so he is telling himself that I'm gathering with the fellow saints because I know this to be a fact. And so what does he do? He calls out. He calls out to the one. He says it four times in verse 2, I will call on him. In verse 4, I called on the name of the Lord. He says it again in verse 13, I called on the name of the Lord. And then again in verse 17, I call on the name of the Lord. So friends, I think we're here today in that same situation. I know I am, and I'm certain that you are too. That you may be living right here in this orientation stage. Things in your life are going great. But for a lot of us, moment by moment, I find that I'm repeating this cycle, don't you? I mean, in my thoughts, in my words, in my actions, I'm, I'm moving this cycle. So these are things that happen moment by moment, Day by day, week by week, we gathered here last Sunday for the promise of the renewal of the covenant, and here we are again to gather together for the promise of the renewal of the covenant, week by week, month by month, year by year. What is our answer? Well, there's great news in this particular psalm. There was great news for the psalmist, and there's great news for you and me too. We cry out to that very one who promises to love us, continue to love us. He's proven it in the past. It's our guarantee in the present 
and the future. So let's look at it. Verses 1 and 2, very briefly then. Here's that orientation stage. If you haven't gotten it yet, I've said it enough, but I, I hope you've gotten it by now. Orientation to disorientation to reorientation, okay? In the orientation stage, look how the psalmist begins. I love the Lord. He is saying he is in a relationship with Yahweh. There is affection on his part and Yahweh's part. There is a relationship together. That's our orientation stage. Why? Because he is a God who is filled with mercy. That's what he says. I love the Lord because he heard my voice. He heard my plea for mercy. I've told you this before, but it's been several months. Remember the definition of mercy, because sometimes we synonymously use grace and mercy together. But mercy is not getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserve to be punished for our sins. We deserve to be punished for our sins, but God hasn't left us there because He is merciful. So we don't get what we deserve because He took what we deserved and He laid that on Christ. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might die to that sin and live to the righteousness that's given to us in Christ. That's because of His mercy. God has taken the first step toward us in that affection for us because He is a God of mercy but also a God of grace. Look at verse 2. He inclined his ear to me. He turned and gave his full attention to me because he is a God of grace as well. Grace now is different from mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserve to be punished. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. We get the full attention of a heavenly Father, our Savior, who loves us and calls us out of darkness into light. This, reor or this orientation stage, once we were apart from saving grace, but God has snatched us from darkness into light. He snatched us out of the world and brought us into His kingdom, His covenant kingdom, and we are now oriented in a relationship, affection, Love, I love the Lord, the psalmist said. So what about you? If you're here today and, and that's your faith, you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, then, then call out to him with thanksgiving and praise that he has, he has worked this gospel in your heart and mind. Why me? Lord, have you ever thought that, ever asked yourself that question? But he has. So call out to him in praise and adoration, thanksgiving for what he has done. But perhaps you're here today and that's not your faith. You're not in that orientation stage. Then friends, Peter preached that same sermon in Acts chapter 2 as the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. If you're, if you're apart from saving grace, you're not in that orientation stage. Call out to him. That's what the psalmist says, verse 2. Call on him. Call out to him. He will give you this gift of grace. He'll save you today. Just like Paul said, today is the day of salvation. But look, oh, how quickly he moves from here, the orientation stage to the disorientation stage, beginning in verses 3 through 11. The snares of death encompassed me. I suffered great distress and anguish. He goes on with this language that is really... Uh, disturbing and dark until he gets to verse 6. Look at verse 6. I was brought low. The Hebrew word there literally means I was hanging as low as I could possibly hang. 
He has moved from this beautiful affection, this state of love in his Savior, and the pains of life and death, or the pains that he's endured now has brought him to hang as low as he has ever experienced before. What's the cause of it? Look at verse 3. Here's the first cause. The snare of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. Because of the evil one, because of the evil one and his followers now living in a fallen world because of our first parents, who, who, by the way, let's be honest, who did only what we would have done as well, right? It's not as if we would have been in the garden and said, oh, I would have never done that. Sure, we would have. So the pangs of Sheol, the evil one who sneaks to, uh, seeks to kill, to steal, and destroy, who wants to rob us of this thing that we have right here and drag us all the way down into this state of discouragement and depression. Uh, Kidner, Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, put it like this. He said, the Old Testament poetry of Sheol is aggressive, clutching to the living ones to waste them. The language here is strong. The pangs of the evil one. He's giving us a picture of the fall. We live in a fallen world. This is the delight of the evil one, that he delights to trip us up. He delights in, in robbing us of this joy and bringing us to this state right here. But look what the psalmist does. He cries out to the Lord. He calls out to the Lord again in verse 4, and he focuses on God's characteristics and his attributes. Because he knows God has been faithful in the past, this affection, this relationship of love that he has lived in, he knows he is going to be faithful now, so he clings to the very things that he knows. Look at verse 5. He camps out on, he calls out to the Lord in his grace, his righteousness, and his mercy. The very things that he's already experienced here He now is calling out for the continuation of those things here. He's focusing on the attributes of God in times of temptation and frustration from the evil one and those who seek to do his work. But from original sin, get this friends, from original sin comes actual sin. Nobody has to teach us how to sin. We're born in sin. But when we're born in that sin, that's exactly what we do. And not only the pangs of Sheol are the reason that he's gone from here to here, but now it's because of the affliction of evil ones, not simply the pangs of the evil one, but now the affliction of evil ones. Look at verse 10 and 11. I am greatly afflicted, he said. All mankind are liars. He finds himself in this particular position of disorientation, because of the frustrations of the pangs of the evil one, but because of the affliction of evil ones, us, you and me, robbing one another of the joy of the gospel by the way we treat one another, the way we talk about one another, the way we engage in one another, in times of hatred instead of times filled with the the brother and sister love that we should have for one another. When we are experiencing that from others, when when the discouragement, when we've been brought to this place where we are hanging as low as we possibly can go because we've been hurt by others or we have hurt others and realize that, look what the psalmist does. What do we do? What do we do in such times? 
We cling to the attributes of God. He has been faithful in the past, and He will be faithful now in the present. Look at verse 7. The Lord has dealt bountifully with you. He has delivered my soul from death. He has delivered my eyes from tears. He has delivered my feet from stumbling. And now I'm going to walk before the Lord in the land of the living. So he's done the same thing again. As he realizes where he is, instead of focusing that, he now cries out to the one, calls out to the one who in his character, in his attributes, reminds him of all of the things that he has done. He's been bountiful with us. He has dealt bountifully with us. Have you heard the term chiasm? It is a literary device. It's also one of the letters in the Greek alphabet, chi. It's an X, and it gives the CH sound. But it's a, it's a crisscross, a literary crisscross, so that an author can use this uh, literary device to make a, a strong point. And here's how it works. The, the, the author will make an A statement, then he or she will make a B statement, and then he or she will make a C statement. And then she, he or she will repeat the B statement and then eventually repeat the A statement. And the focus comes in the center. What's in the center? And here is a chiasm. Here's the first part. Here's the first A statement. He delivered me, or the, the, the snares of death, verse 3, encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol. Here's the cause of my disorientation, the pangs of Sheol. From that, he makes his B statement saying, let's look at the attributes of God instead. Instead of focusing on the pangs of Sheol, let's remember the attributes of God. And then he makes his C statement, verse 7, which becomes our focal point, and that is, return, O my soul, to your rest. Then he repeats the B statement, going back to the attributes of God. He's dealt bountifully with me. He's dealt bountifully with me, and he has, he has kept my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, and so forth. And then he repeats the A statement, not simply the pangs of Sheol, but the, afflic- or the pangs of the evil one, but pang- the afflic- affliction of evil ones. The center, the focus of the chiasm, the focus for the psalmist, and the focus for you and me is verse 7. Return, O my soul, to your rest. Friends, listen. When we move from here to here, from orientation to disorientation, the affection your Savior has for you, if you are a child who has been oriented by the gift of grace, His affection for you is so strong, He will not leave you here. It may seem like an eternity. It may seem like it never goes away. Certainly, that's what the psalmist is saying. Return to that rest that he gives. Here's the promise. Orientation to disorientation. And now eventually all the way back to reorientation. Look at verse 12 to the end. What shall I render to the Lord for his benefits to me? Friends, please get out of your mind. There is nothing that we can render to the Lord that makes him our debtor. There is nothing that we can do or say or apply that by our effort and our work will move us from here all the way back up to here. But we live that way, don't we? We live that way over and over on this performance treadmill that I can't fall off this way or that way, but I have to make him love me more. Hey, wake up. He loves you already 100%. Cheer up. You're worse off than you think you are. 
That's the good news of the gospel is that he loves you already 100%. He already oriented you into a relationship with him. We disorient ourselves from giving into the evil one and evil ones, giving into our own sin, not only with our relationships with one another, but the sins that we choose to do that bring us from here to here. But he loves us too much to leave us there, and now he says, return and find that rest. It's all by grace, friends. What do we render to the Lord? Nothing that makes him our debtor, but we render to the Lord praise and worship. I will lift up the cup of salvation. I'll pay my vows to the Lord. But look how he refers to himself. He calls himself a saint in verse 15 and a servant in verse 16. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So even in, even in that disorientation stage, we still cling to the fact of knowing that he loves us. He's been faithful in the past and will be faithful even now in our present, even if it brings us to the point of death. Death of one of his saints. And then he says, oh Lord, I am your servant, the servant of your maidservant. Saint, that's the word just meaning the called out one, set apart one. He's called us out of darkness into light. You're a saint. And a servant that I once was bound by my chains to my sin, but my chains have fell, have fell off, my heart was freed, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains are now bound to my Savior. I'm in union with Him. He is my affection. He is my all in all. He is the one to whom I seek to be obedient, the one I give all of my affection to as a saint and a servant. And then lastly, it leads us to worship. Spurgeon had said, the psalmist receives mercy in private, but he offers praise in public. Look what he does. I'll pay my vows in the presence of all the people, verse 18, in the courts of the house of the Lord, gathered in the temple. Once I get up all the way to the top, I'm going to lift my voice with others. Oh, Jerusalem, and I am going to praise the Lord. Worship, friends. Worship is the picture, is the illustration of God moving you from here all the way back to here. His affection for you, that he would not leave you here as we worship him. He's renewing that covenant with us, reminding us, even in this cycle that repeats itself over and over again. He has been faithful, he is faithful, and he will be for all eternity. That's a gracious gospel, isn't it? That's a gracious God. The movie, play, and musical, Le Miserable, if you've seen it, you know the central figure is Jean Valjean. And he has spent 19 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. And in those 19 years, he is tortured. Javert is the police official who watches the way he responds to this torture for years and years and years. Jean Valjean finally is released and he finds grace from a Catholic priest who gives him bread and soup, but he steals from him the candlesticks and all of the different things if you are familiar with the play, the musical, the book. Over time, though, through the story, we see all these beautiful pictures. If you haven't seen it lately, you ought to see it. These beautiful pictures of redemption. The gospel message is there over and over and over again. 
Years advanced, Jean Valjean is now the mayor. The work of grace has been applied to his heart. He's become a completely different man, forgiving those that had tortured him. But Javert comes to, uh, face to face with him, and is, he, he finds him familiar. He can't quite place where he knows him from, and so he just follows him and watches him. One particular day, a cart filled with all kinds of supplies at the top of a hill, and an elderly gentleman at the bottom of the hill, and the cart breaks loose and rolls down and finds itself on top of this elderly gentleman. The town, townspeople run to the cart trying to lift it up off of him to free the elderly man. And Jean Valjean sees and runs over while Javert is watching. And he gets under the cart and with all of his might he stands and he lifts the weight of the cart off of the old man. And the old man is pulled out. The old man went from orientation. He was standing there living life to disorientation. The cart was on top of him. To reorientation, the cart was lifted and he was freed. Isaiah gives us a similar story, but with one big difference. He gives us the same picture in his prophecy. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He was crushed for our iniquities. And that punishment that brought us peace is now upon him. The cart was not lifted off of our Savior, friends. The fullness of divine wrath was poured out on our Savior because that is what it would take for us to be oriented. And in our disorientation, that finished work is now the very thing it would take to reorient us back to the one who is that gracious. What is our call? Cry out to him. Call out to him. It was the, the work of grace that God worked in the psalmist in 116. And it's the work of grace that he works in you and me today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you love us this much, that this is the gospel that you have applied to us, that you have sealed to us, that we are yours, bought with a price. You were crushed for our iniquities. But we live now in peace because we have this absolute certainty of knowing that you have been faithful in the past and that is the guarantee that you will be today and you will be forevermore. So as we find ourselves moving through this cycle, we pray, Lord, that you would remind us to, like the psalmist, call out to you, call on the name.